The Brewers celebrate the 4th in epic fashion. There's all kinds of news in the NBA with regards to free agency. The USFL crowns their first champion and we'll cap today's podcast off with three questions with Alex Best. We'll get to all of that coming up. It's the 414 Sports Podcast. Let's go. But instead, it's the 414 Sports Podcast, and it starts right now. Welcome in once again. This is the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillas. Thanks so much for logging in and joining us, whether you've done so, as always, on Spotify, Google, Apple, or any of the other five platforms that we reside on. Always appreciate you taking some time to listen to this podcast. So if you would, hit that like, subscribe button. We would definitely appreciate it. As I said in the intro, we're talking Brewers bunch of NBA free agency news, not only around the NBA, but with the Bucks specifically. The USFL crowned its first champion, and I, I think part of the USFL uh, storyline there is they survived. They made it through an entire season, so we'll get to that. And then, as I noted, we'll wrap things up with three questions for Alex Best. Anytime you get to talk sports with an eight-year-old who has some real genuine opinions, it's always a good time. So Alex will wrap things up today on this podcast. But let's get to the Brewers. The Brewers yesterday with a nice extra inning win against our arch rivals, the old dreaded Chicago Cubs. They beat them 5-2. to two. And as we said in the intro, it was a bit of an epic ending. It was a way to get the fireworks started a little bit early. And it sounded like this, this however, is courtesy of Bally Sports Wisconsin and Brian Anderson. Do it again. Two balls and a strike. Caratini, center field, hit well. Ortega launches in. Again, that's Brian Anderson, courtesy of Bally Sports Wisconsin, on the call yesterday afternoon as Victor Carantini walked it off to give the Brewers, as we noted, that 5-2 victory. I think what's even sweeter is the fact that Victor Carantini, after serving his suspension for, oh, you know, doing something you ain't supposed to do in the world of professional athletics, uh, got the start yesterday and then went 0-4. for 4 striking out four times, trying to find his rhythm, trying to get back into the swing of things. And I I kind of expected at that point in the game, being extra innings, you know, now we play softball rules in Major, Major League Baseball and we put the runner on second base, which drives me nuts, but that's for another podcast. Um, we're ready to roll with a runner in scoring position and you thought uh, maybe he'll pinch hit. Maybe he'll put somebody else in today for Victor Carantini, but Craig Council 
stuck with his guy and his guy in this case being Carantini able to come through and get the walk-off homer. Now the Brewers still play the Cubs two more times. They'll have a 7-10 start, first pitch start tonight on Tuesday. I get the days are all mixed up with the fourth being on Monday. So Tuesday, it'll be a 7-10 start. And then an afternoon matinee, a businessman special, as they like to call it. It'll be a 1-10 first pitch on Wednesday. The Brewers still in first place in the NL Central. Right now, a three-game lead over the Cardinals. Brewers 12 games above 500 at 47 and 35. The Cubs right now are 14 games back at 32 and 48. So the Cubs played well yesterday. Uh, the pitching was good. The Brewers having a really difficult time early on in that game, finding a rhythm offensively. But all that matters is that final score and that final score happening. Uh, in extra with the walk-off home run and an important win as always. The Brewers offensively doing a little better. When you look at the batting averages, now I know people who dive into the analytics of baseball, people who are are just analytically driven with the game, the whole money ball scenario to it. And I think there's ways of looking at trends and so forth when it comes to analytics. But I, I think sometimes we overindulge in the numbers. And so I, I simply just, I, I try to keep things as simplistic as possible. Maybe, maybe because that's how my brain will handle it. But I just go right to the batting averages. And you look at the batting averages of the Milwaukee Brewers and you almost marvel at the fact that they're 12 games above 500 in first place in the NL Central with the way this team on July 5th is performing offensively. When your best hitter on this team is still in the 200s, Omar Navarez, 258. And then you look at like Hunter Renfro at 247. Willie Adamas at 210. Rowdy Telez, 239. Christian Yelich at 253, kind of making his way back up the chart, so to speak. There's a bad Casey Kasem pun there, but Christian Yelich kind of getting his rhythm back. And early on in the season, and we talked about it on earlier podcasts, you know, Christian Yelich looking different this year, even though the numbers weren't necessarily there. It, there was a confidence again at the plate. And yes, he was making outs. He was striking out. All of these guys do. But because he's the former MVP, because he got the big contract, it seems like the spotlight continually focuses on Christian. And yet he was performing equally with his peers. Now, that doesn't necessarily make an excuse, but he was hitting the ball hard. It looked as if he had more confidence, as I noted, at the plate. There were things that gave you indicators, like if he could just start rolling a little bit, those numbers would climb. Moving Christian to the leadoff spot. When Craig Council moved him to the leadoff spot, there were some question marks with that move, but that seems to be paying off. Yelich seems to be very comfortable starting the game off and providing, in some cases, a little bit of a boost 
with his bat because the numbers, as I noted, were coming up. What has saved the Brewers this year has been their pitching. What will save the Brewers in the postseason will be their pitching. Right now, the pitching needs a little bit of help. Now, granted, they've been beset by injuries, but you still have Corbin Burns. He sits with a 2.49 ERA. Brandon Woodruff with a 2.92. So your top two pitchers sitting under three. But then it's the back half of the starting rotation. Eric Lauer, 4.2. Hauser, 4.8. Then you get guys like Jason Alexander at 5.1. We need Freddie Peralta to come back. We need Freddie to be healthy for the back half of the season. And we need Freddie to pitch the way Freddie can pitch. Now, before the injury, Freddie had a 3-4 ERA. And again, that's that's the part I look at. I know some people will look at the whip. So you can go right down the line again with all of the analytics now that baseball offers. I just go right to the ERA. That, in many cases, tells me all I need to know. I don't need to dive in. I'll let, I'll let the Brewers front office and the coaching staff and the managers do all of that because if it helps them with strategy, great. For me, I go right to the ERA. And so if we can get a Freddie Peralta back, if you can get one, two, and three solid on the pitching staff down the home stretch, then the Brewers have a shot. Now, I don't know how deep that shot will be this year because the offense, at least as of July 5, has been yeah, a little bit below average, maybe a C- minus if we're putting a grade on it. If the offense can get a rhythm going through July into August and obviously you got it you got to have some sort of of rhythm heading into September once playoff baseball starts to heat up if they can do that and match what Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff have done and we get as I noted a Freddie Peralta moving back into the fray as far as starting goes you know you got Josh Hader and Devin Williams on the back end the pitching staff is what's held this team together now and now it's time for the offense to kind of set the pace a little bit higher than where they currently stand and then you have a team who knows what could happen I mean as it stands right now I don't necessarily think this is a team that a could go deep into the playoffs or b even find themselves in the world series but as we've said time and time again we're in the midst of a marathon not a sprint now, have we cracked the halfway point? Theoretically, we're right about there. We're close. We're not quite at the halfway point, but theoretically, we'll just say we're right about there. The All-Star Game will be coming up, and you know that is for many, even though the numbers might not dictate it, it's the halfway point of the season. So we've hit that halfway part. Now it's time making sure, like we noted, that Freddie Peralta is healthy, the bats start to increase a little bit, and we start to see this team really gel going down the home stretch. The nice part is is that we're starting to see that distance now sitting at three games between the Brewers and the Cardinals. Now, again, the Brewers won't face the Cardinals head-to-head until August. And so those games down the stretch will be important, but they won't have as great of significance if the Brewers can really start extending that lead in the NL Central. So as we make our way to the All-Star break, we hope that everybody, A, stays healthy, 
but B, once we come out of the all-star break, that things really start to steamroll, that that snowball at the top of the hill becomes a boulder by the time it gets to the bottom. All right, let's wrap things up with that segment and move into NBA free agency. There's stuff happening all over the league. Free agency, I know, was always a sticking point for Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL back in the day as they worked through that whole process. But those in the front office of all of the major sporting leagues must sit back and just revel in free agency because of the notoriety it gets and the fact that we're talking NBA basketball after the season has ended. Uh, the guys in the front office got to be loving it. And we love it too because it gives us something to talk about. So NBA free agency coming up right after we take a quick timeout. All right, let's talk some NBA free agency. We'll start with the Milwaukee Bucks. I think as far as names go, one of the biggest names for this city that was re-signed by the front office was Bobby Portis. I mean, you could hear the city reverberating on the day that it was announced Bobby would re-sign with the Bucks. The Bobby, Bobby, Bobby Chance were all over the place. Bobby Portis has just been this player that has endeared himself to the team and this city and the fan base has returned it. And so it's great to see that Bobby Portis has a four-year deal with the Bucks, and hopefully we'll spend all four years of that deal in Milwaukee and hopefully be that integral part as the Bucks again try to get back into an NBA championship. The Bucks also signed Joe Ingles. Joe Ingles, kind of a three-point sharpshooter, something that the Bucks lacked in the playoffs this year. Joe, a 40% three-point shooting uh, forward coming to Milwaukee now and hopefully to give the Bucks a little bit more depth along the perimeter. Another signing, which I'll tell you surprised me a little bit, and not because of the player's stature, or caliber of play, but just how things played out at the end of the season, and that's Serge Ibaka. So Serge is reportedly signing a deal as a free agent to stay in Milwaukee, which I think is great. I think it adds depth to the bench, but there were times down the stretch, especially in the playoffs, where you almost looked at Coach Bud and went, do you, do you even remember that Serge is on this team? Because it seemed like he had been relocated so far down the depth chart when maybe he could have stepped in and provided a little bit of veteran leadership, maybe given you some perimeter shooting that was lacking against specifically the Boston Celtics. And so I wasn't sure how that marriage, so to speak, how it was standing, where it was sitting at, and yet we find out that reportedly Serge Ibaka again will sign with the Milwaukee Bucks. So I think that's great news. So the Bucks still have some spots to fill, and free agency, though, has gotten going. I don't think it will really get going until we figure out what Kevin Durant is going to do. So Kevin Durant still sitting out there. Brooklyn 
I think being smart, Brooklyn's asking for everything under the sun for the ability to trade Kevin Durant, and I think they should. And if it doesn't make Kevin Durant happy, that, that that's a tough one because, you know, it's a business, and you decided to go play with Brooklyn. You signed the extension, and now because of the way things played out, you want to move on again. And again, if I'm Brooklyn, though you don't want to necessarily, I don't know what the, the proper terminology is, but you want to be gracious in how you go about your business, the problem is it's still a business. And the problem is it's not necessarily what you did. It's the fact that now your star player wants to go. So if I'm Brooklyn, I'm not trading Kevin Durant just to trade Kevin Durant to appease his wish. The fact that it's a business and I've got to keep this organization moving forward now with essentially my starters going, packing their bags. Kyrie Irving, everybody over the weekend is talking about that he's working out in L.A. and does not plan on leaving L.A. until somehow he and the Lakers can figure out a sign and trade. So there again, Brooklyn, though, will have to retool, and Brooklyn will not look like the Brooklyn Nets of the last couple of years. But if done correctly, Brooklyn can really set themselves up, maybe not for next year, but two, three, four years, even 10 years down the line between the assets that they get for these two players and the draft picks that they could get. Now, whether you use those draft picks again to actually utilize them in the draft or trade those to bring in other veterans, I mean, that's up to their front office. But if handled correctly by the Brooklyn Nets, they have a chance to back up the Brinks truck from a perspective of talent. And though, yes, you are losing big names, you have the chance to put big names back into that building and keep your team relevant for many, many, many years. Zion Williamson signs his five-year max extension with the New Orleans Pelicans. That's good to see, I think, for New Orleans. It's good to see that they've been able to hold on to their star. Maybe that star is staying because of the injuries that he's ascertained since coming into the league, and maybe there aren't a lot of people out there who are willing to pay the type of money that New Orleans can. However it works out, he remains with the New Orleans Pelicans. Zach Levine, he'll return to the Bulls on a max deal. Kevin Looney re-signs with the NBA Championship Golden State Warriors. And as we close out free agency, do the Golden State Warriors just want to move here? Like, should we be building another arena to hold Golden State games during the course of the NBA season? You know how some cities or some states have two teams you know, you can go to Texas, you've got Dallas and Houston and San Antonio. You go to California, you've got a couple of teams. Are, are we getting to the point that maybe Wisconsin should have two teams and the other team being Golden State? Because seemingly anybody who has any connection with our fair city ends up being a Golden State warrior. And the reason I went through that whole diatribe, Dante DiVincenzo is expected to now sign with the Golden State Warriors. So add him to Kevin Looney, and we go right down the line even to the draft where they picked up Patrick Baldwin Jr. It just, any ties with 
NBA players to the city of Milwaukee, Golden State is grabbing. I think we should just build another arena and start having Golden State games here. Maybe all their away game. I don't know how you would do it. I'm getting over the top on this, but it's just kind of funny to see how Golden State has tapped our fine area uh, to help rebuild their roster. All right, let's take another quick timeout. And after we come back, the USFL crowned a champion over the weekend, but maybe that's not the most important thing. I'll tell you why in just a sec. So the USFL wrapped up season number one this past weekend with their championship game. It was held between the Birmingham Stallions and the Philadelphia Stars. It will be Birmingham with a 33-30 victory in really what was a good game to win the first ever USFL championship. So if you watched any USFL games this season, you would find that the football was pretty good. If you get over the fact that you're watching football in the spring, the games themselves, after the first couple of weeks, were pretty entertaining. It was pretty decent football, and it was a nice way, again, for these players to put their skill set on tape to hopefully give them another shot at the NFL. Why I say going into the last break that the most important thing maybe wasn't the fact that Birmingham won the championship. It was the fact they survived. And that's been the issue with other leagues that have tried spring football has been just the survival rate. When we look back at the XFL, we've had a couple of renditions of the XFL. We're getting another one next year that will compete with the USFL, which I don't know how that's going to play, but nonetheless, the XFL back at it again next year. The XFL may have survived in its last rendition, but the pandemic hit and really cut things short. We know their first uh, incarnation of the XFL after a couple of weeks just became a disaster, though the NFL picked up some Uh, televising techniques and some other things that the XFL was doing from an innovative standpoint and incorporated it into the NFL. But in its next reincarnation, the, the pandemic hit and off it went. We've seen AFL, the American Football League, which had a little bit of backing from CBS Sports, only make it, what, three, four, maybe a fifth week, I'm not quite sure with only four teams, and it, it, it faded away. So what I'm getting at is we've seen a lot of these spring football leagues come and go. The USFL, though this is a reincarnation of something that went years ago, and if you really want to see um, a decent documentary, the 30 for 30 on the USFL and how it started and its demise when it was its first inception – it's well worth the watch. And those 30 for 30s on ESPN are good anyway, but that's a good watch nonetheless. So going into this season, one of the things that we constantly talked about was can the USFL A survive? And if you want to know if they're going to survive, you need to watch the television ratings. So the television ratings week one 
were decent, were really decent. And then in weeks two and week three, things started to fade, even to the point when we get to June. Now, we're talking June, so we're talking several weeks of USFL games. We get into the Friday, June 3rd game on the USA Network between the New Jersey Generals and the Pittsburgh Mullers. It only averaged 208,000. That's not great. But it had viewers. And so as we saw the season progress, the television viewership really fluctuated depending upon who was playing. So if we go back to May, you have a game between the Michigan Panthers and the Tampa Bay Bandits, again on USA, that only had 250,000 viewers. But then you go to Saturday when the Generals were playing the Breakers and you had almost three-quarters of a million. And then on Sunday when Birmingham was playing Philadelphia on NBC, you were just shy of a million. And then that Sunday night game on Fox, well over a half million. Now, granted, those numbers pale in comparison to what the NFL does. I only point them out because the numbers, after a bit of a dip, bounced back a little bit and found themselves being able to sustain a certain audience. And when they were able to sustain that certain audience, that's your foundation from which you grow. And so the USFL surviving with the help of Fox, having a financial backer that was a little deep in the pockets, allowing them to kind of get through the hurdles, allowing them to get through the season now, builds at least a foundation moving forward. Now, one of the things the USFL is going to have to try and figure out is they took a business model this year of playing all their games in one city. So, yes, you had Tampa Bay. Yes, you had Philadelphia. Yes, you had Michigan. Um, You can go down the line with the various teams and cities, but they were all playing in Birmingham, Alabama. Again, it's a business model that the USFL adopted. If they're going to succeed moving forward, they've got to figure out how to allow those cities that have teams to have home games. Not that, you know, we've got Pittsburgh playing Tampa and they're playing in Birmingham and you've got, you know, 300 people sitting in the stands because it's not the home team. You saw greater attendance when Birmingham was playing. You didn't see those numbers when those other teams were playing because the connection wasn't there. So the USFL is going to have to figure out a travel budget and a stadium budget for these other teams in order to get those cities to have that connection to build the fan base. The potential is there. The USFL did something I wasn't sure they were going to be able to do, which was make it through the entire season and begin to build a foundation for moving forward. Now the key will be next year, the XFL will have a quick jump on them before the USFL begins their season. The XFL is trying to, I guess, slide in that gap post-Super Bowl before the USFL begins to get their product up and rolling. And so now that you've got competitive leagues going at one another in the spring, I don't know what that means for level of competition. And then again, I don't know what that means for viewership. Will that create confusion for viewers? Listen, there's still people out there. When I brought this up over the weekend about, hey, the USFL's got a championship game and you get looks of their spring football, there's still a lot of people that didn't even realize spring football was taking place. So 
for the USFL to survive, they need obviously the marketing crew to get going. You need to get established within these various cities, but they made it an entire season. So it'll be interesting to see from a business perspective and a competitive standpoint moving into next season, how the USFL will progress. With that, we'll close things up in just a sec after a timeout as we wrap things up today with three questions for Alex Best. I'll explain in just a sec. All right, so let's close things up with a segment I'm going to call Three Questions for Alex Best. Alex Best is an eight-year-old headed into the third grade who loves his baseball, who loves to just talk and watch sports like many kids around the country. And Alex has got some great perspectives on a number of topics. And so the first thing I asked Alex was, give me your thoughts on the whole Kyrie Irving Kevin Durant thing that's going on in NBA free agency? Um, I think that Kevin Durant's most possible places are probably going to be the Heat or the Suns. And I'm guessing it's going to be the Suns because the Nets can get more talent from there. The, I'm guessing he's going to get traded. Kevin Durant's going to get traded for Devin Booker because that's just what they're going to do. And maybe a couple of draft picks. And Kyrie Irving uh, on the Lakers, well, might go to the Lakers. He might go in for, like, Carmelo Anthony or someone like so that. So then we switch gears, and I asked Alex his opinion on something that we've talked about in the past episode of the 414 Sports Podcast, and that's this whole, I don't know, should we call it realignment with the Big Ten and adding USC and UCLA Here's what Alex had to say about that. So the Big Ten, if it gets bigger and the SEC gets bigger, then it eventually at the end of some time, it's just going to be Big Ten SEC, and the winners of both of those conferences are just going to play against each other. And teams that I think might join, I think Miami and Duke might join, just because they just, in the ACC, you're not getting much of like a business. All right. So then I know my guy is a huge baseball fan and I wanted to get his take on how he thought the Milwaukee Brewers were going to do this year. Here's what Alex had to say about the Brewers here. Um, I think they're going to be pretty decent. They might not be the best team in the league, but I think the Cardinals are going to catch up to them at some point. The Cardinals are going to like get close to them, but the Brewers are going to be on top. I don't think they're going to win the World Series this year, but they're going to get very close. They might even get to the World Series. And so we wrap things up by letting Alex plug his own YouTube channel because he's going to be taking this job before I know it. And so here's Alex, and listen closely because he's got his own YouTube channel. They're doing their own podcast, talking about sports, and as he likes to say, other stuff. Check this out. So... My YouTube channel is called Showtime 3. I've only released 
one video, but it's mainly about just talking about college football, and we might talk a little bit about professional sports and the college football, like, playoffs. And just talk about stuff. <laughs> and make sure to subscribe. And what's it again? What's the name Showtime of it? Showtime 3. And you find it where? On YouTube. All right, so that's my guy Alex Best giving us uh, his thoughts and opinions on three different subjects in the world of sports. And as you heard, don't forget, you can check his podcast out, Showtime 3, on YouTube. I'm sure he would love it if you would like and subscribe there. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the 414 Sports Podcast. Thanks so much for logging in and joining us. Until next time, let's be safe. Let's take care of one another, all right? We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.